Good evening, good evening everyone. Welcome to this episode of Politics Wednesday with the Sowetan and the Exchange podcast. Our guest is Professor Adjunct Professor Michael Sachs, a former budget officer, manager of the budget officer at the National Treasury, very prominent figure in terms of policy thinking in South Africa. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Sam. Happy to be here. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And I'd like to just lay out how this conversation uh, will work. And we came to talk to you about uh, South Africa's uh, economy broadly, our fiscal problem or fiscal crisis, your recent work around uh, these problems in your writing. Uh, We'll have a chat about it. And I'm quite keen to get uh, anybody in here in the room who's keen to make a contribution early up uh, please uh, put your hand up we'll make sure you get handed the mic uh, you do that uh, simply by requesting to be a speaker and uh, we'll make sure you get a chance uh, to have uh, your say as we talk to uh, prof uh, michael Sachs, somebody who really needs no introduction uh, in south africa when it comes to uh, economic policy and thinking uh, around uh, our future so, Mike, you wrote a paper last uh, published uh, uh, last week, and uh, it just played across uh, the the media. It says a lot about uh, the value people attach uh, to to your work uh, and your thinking uh, around uh, South Africa's fiscal crisis and uh, the options uh, we have. Could you briefly take us through? Uh, uh, your paper and uh, what it says about uh, the state of things in South Africa. Okay, uh, so the paper was about uh, the basic, the proposals for a basic income grant. I was a member of a panel that was appointed by the Department of Social Development uh, looking into uh, the question of a basic income grant. And that panel uh, issued its report in December. And uh, in January or or earlier in the month, I noticed that there was a great deal of controversy because a a report from a different panel, from the Presidential uh, Economic Advisory Committee, uh, had been leaked. And and that was a briefing note to the president that uh, made... Uh, a number of critical comments about the panel I was a member of. And there was an ensuing uh, public debate in which I really found the whole discussion to be unhelpfully polarized, uh, with on the one hand, uh, people condemning the the president's advisors uh, for having uh, advised caution uh, on the basic income grant uh, and on the other hand, uh, the panel of which I was a member being accused of, of lacking that caution. So, so I really wrote the article to try and say, look, there are two sides of this debate. And there's a very strong sense in which both of them are right. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, uh, this is a common theme for me, at least in economic policy in South Africa, is that you, you, you people try to present things as though there's only one side of the story. 
And those who, who present the other side are somehow either not up to speed or have kind of some hidden agenda. But you find in a lot of these debates, the debates themselves reflect uh, the reality that there are difficult, these are difficult problems to solve. So, so what I was saying in the paper is on the one hand, uh, well, my starting point is really that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to ask whether we should have basic income support because we already have it. We already have a COVID SRD grant that has been extended to millions of people. Uh, the president announced last week in the States of the Nation address that, it, that it's being extended for another year. And uh, in my view, it's highly unlikely that it would be withdrawn. Um, so, so in a sense, my starting point is it's here already. Uh, and then I say, and there are, there's, there's a lot of uh, positive uh, outcomes and consequences of this basic in, of this basic income support that has already been extended, uh, the fact that it can significantly reduce hunger and uh, poverty is is a massive uh, a gain for for millions of South Africans. That 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 is not a small thing. And the the kind of damage that it does to the fiscal position, while it does do some damage to the fiscal position. Uh, it's not going to be the last straw that breaks any camel's back. So that's the one side of the argument that, that, that I articulated. But then on the other side uh, is the reality that we are in a fiscal crisis. We're in a, we, we have a chronic fiscal position in South Africa, and that chronic fiscal position uh, can't be wished away. Uh, it can't be dismissed. It has real consequences, and therefore the president's advisors were quite correct to, to caution that when you introduce a new increase in spending such as this grant, uh, you must be aware of and, and take account of the fiscal risks it poses. And essentially, I suppose, uh, then my conclusion is that uh, in taking account of these risks, uh, the important thing to, 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 to be aware of is that if you int introduce a, a kind of permanent increase in spending, which this grant represents, you should be honest to the people and say, this means your taxes are going to go up. And I suppose that's, that, that's how I kind of concluded in a, in, a, in, a, in a criticism, I suppose, of the president and the way he, he has approached this particular matter which is to say he wants to give uh, the basic income grant on the one hand, but I don't hear him talking about the sacrifices that are going to have to be made in order to make it a reality. So on the one hand, you know, it's nice to give people nice things, but on the other hand, uh, you don't want to talk about the sacrifices that is involved and uh, that's a wrong way to approach uh, policy. And in fact, it's, it's, it's almost like a dereliction of leadership uh, because the role of a leader uh, is to, is to certainly deliver on the things people want, but also be bold enough to explain to society the sacrifices that will have to be made. So, so I, I suppose that's a, my garbled summary 
of 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 the paper. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Michael. So when you then look at the State of the Nation address, uh, mm -hmm. the president has told us that the 350 grant, different grant to the basic income grant, uh, is going to be extended for a year. So do you think the are you happy as somebody who uh, influences uh, things and the thought around South Africa that the president uh, dealt uh, with uh, some of the issues you're talking about and you've already hinted uh, your displeasure uh, at uh, the that the president is not addressing uh, the one side uh, of the debate, uh, which is uh, the sacrifices to be made. Are you happy besides that? That uh, some of these issues uh, you're talking about and found some expression uh, in uh, the general tone of the State of the Nation address? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, look, on the one hand, uh, the president, when he addressed the issue of this, this grant and, and, and announced that it would be extended, he did immediately follow follow that with a statement about fiscal sustainability and the importance of ensuring, uh, so, so acknowledging the fiscal uh, challenges that we face and, and saying that the grant must be uh, within the, the, the limits that that imposes on us. So uh, to some extent, yes, uh, you, you know, it was a long speech, uh, as others have commented. It had a lot of detail. But I still think that, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not just a question of a single speech. It's a question of conducting policy in a way that recognizes the trade-offs and the sacrifices, that recognizes that if this country uh, has, to, has to develop and grow, uh, that process is necessarily a process that, that, that involves sacrifices and hard work by the people. And by various people at various locations in society, it's not simply a question of government being generous or government uh, implementing or not implementing particular policies. It's a question of asking citizens to, to sacrifice uh, um, income. So, so, so if you're going to give income uh, to, to poor people, you have to take that income from rich people. And I think uh, the president, uh, and, and, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's probably unfair to put it all at the door of an individual. I think the ANC in government in general has been uh, very uh, uh, unwilling to, to, to face those, those challenges. So, so we have this constant discourse that says we, we, we have good policies, but we're bad at implementation. And I think it's wrong uh, because a policy that is not designed, uh, that, that doesn't indicate how is it going to be financing, financed and what are the sacrifices that are going to have to be made by various sections of society is not a good policy because what it is, is a wish. So we say we wish to have national health insurance so that everybody has good health care. But when it comes to explaining to people on private medical aid that this might imply uh, some implication for their own health care, uh, that they will have to sacrifice something, uh, you don't hear the, the, the silence is deafening. 
and then uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, you go back to ANC conferences and it hasn't been implemented. And uh, we say, well, we had a good policy, but bad implementation. No, you have not spelled out what is required to implement the policy. And that's why it's not been implemented. Uh, not because you have bad implementation capacity, because you have bad politics, because you have flawed politics, because it's not the role of the administration in government to resolve uh, these contradictions, because the kind of contradictions I'm talking about are deep political contradictions in society. And if you're not prepared to, to confront those and uh, head on and deal with them in some way or another, uh, it's very convenient to then say, well, the, the administrators didn't implement it properly, where actually the blame should be laid at the door of the politicians and the ANC and not uh, the administration in government. Okay, Mark, thanks. I'm keen to come back to the topic of the ANC's responsibility uh, around uh, these uh, decisions and choices. If you were an advisor, let's look at it uh, academically here, Mike, an advisor to the ANC president or the ANC itself, or you were still at the budget office, uh, you're looking at uh, the issue from within government, what sort of choices are these? Where would you cut, uh, for example, to sustain uh, the new 350 grant and also to uh, introduce a basic uh, income grant? If you could take us through the budget, put on your head as the head of the uh, budget office uh, and then see academically uh, what is uh, realistic here so um i think the first thing is is to say is that the fiscal position uh, that we find ourselves in uh, the kind of chronic uh, decline of the the public finances and all of the crises around that that i that I can talk more about otherwise, is not really uh, a problem that is created by the budget. Uh, it is a problem that is created by the fact that the economy has been stagnating uh, for a decade and looks set to continue stagnating uh, into the foreseeable future as far as uh, most of the forecasts suggest. So, so the problem we have uh, is not so much that, or, or it's not primarily a, a problem of budgeting. It's a problem of economic growth. The economic growth we have uh, is not sufficient to sustain the, the wide range of expenditures that we are committed to. So, and, and you, you know, when you think about a concept like fiscal sustainability. It's important to look at it holistically. So there's no, it doesn't really make sense to say, uh, is, a, is a particular grant sustainable? Uh, sustainability is not a, uh, a, a char characteristic of a particular policy. It's a characteristic of the entire package of policies that you have on the table. So we want to extend free tertiary education to university students. We want to have a national health insurance. We want to have a presidential employment stimulus. We want to have a basic income grant. 
there's nothing wrong with each of those policies. Individually, there's a lot to commend any and each one of those policies. The point is, is that uh, what are the sacrifices you are prepared to make to, to execute uh, these policies? And, and there's a broad range of, of things that you would then need to consider. The first might be, well, so I've mentioned uh, about five different policies. Uh, the first might be to say, okay, if we want a basic income grant, we will not be able to afford free tertiary education. So you're making a, a kind of a choice between different policies and saying, well, at the moment, which is the priority between the two? Which one do you want? Uh, so that's the first, and I'm not suggesting, uh, I'm, I'm posing these things as hypothetical to illustrate the kind of trade-offs you have to look at. So the first category that I'm talking about is between different parts of spending. So do we spend on A or do we spend on B? Then you might say, well, we want to spend on both. We want to do both. So what does that imply? That implies then you will have to talk about increasing taxes because the total level of expenditure is going to go up. And these are not uh, temporary expenditures. These are permanent commitments you're making. And the only way to finance those permanent commitments is through a permanent increase in taxation. Another way of looking at the possible trade-off might be that you say, well, if I can come to some kind of agreement with public sector workers that uh, they should moderate their pay increases, or I find some other way within the budget to, to, to reduce expenditures of, of that nature, then uh, um, uh, I could find resources in the budget by maybe moderating the pay gains of teachers and nurses and, and, and police officers. Now, the point about these examples, so I've used three examples, you can, you can first choose between different expenditure items prioritize the one over the other. If you want to do them both, you could raise taxes or you could look at some other component, large component of expenditure like the public sector salaries and say, maybe I, I, I can do something there to contain the salaries in order to raise the, the resources to pay for these things. Now, in all of those cases, the point is, is that somebody will be happy and somebody else will not be happy. So in the first case, if we say uh, we should have a basic income grant and therefore we should not have a, uh, a, a free uh, university education, of course, university students are not going to be happy with that and they're going to protest, right? If you say, uh, we, okay, well, then we must have both the uh, basic income grant and the university education, so we're going to raise taxes then taxpayers are not going to be happy and they are going to protest. Uh, and then if you go to the third option and you want to contain public sector pay, uh, you're going to have to negotiate with public sector unions and they might not be happy. The point is, is that the, the government's budget is a social compact. That is what it is. It's, a, it's an agreement between different sections of society to shift resources uh, from one use to another use. And when you shift resources around, uh, you, you make the beneficiaries uh, benefit 
but there's somebody else who pays the cost somewhere within the system. And if you simply conduct policy in a way that we're going to just add benefits, add benefits, add benefits, and never discuss where the costs are going to come from, that's when you get into this uh, chronic fiscal crisis that we're, we're, we're currently facing. So I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting like, so those three examples that I'm used, I'm not saying they are the right, which path is the right path. We, we, we can discuss that. But for now, I'm just illustrating the principle that the budget is a social compact. And the way the ANC and the president approach the budget is that uh, uh, it can give them uh, uh, stuff without them having to face any political consequences. And that unwillingness to, 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 to face the cost of policy uh, is why so much of our policy cannot be taken forward and why we find ourselves in this chronic fiscal crisis. Okay, uh, thanks, uh, Mike. At this stage, let's take uh, Ndala. Kamumane Ndala might have a question or a comment uh, with the conversation. Ndala, welcome. Thanks, thanks, Sam. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good evening, uh, Professor Michael. Uh, I think let me... Uh, uh, good evening to you, sir. Let me first declare. <laughs> My name is Linda. I'm not sure whether I still remember me. Okay, but uh, we had a brief stint at National Treasury. Let me declare that. Ah, yes. I think you must be in Mpumalanga. Eh? No. Anyway, proceed. Proceed. Okay, that's fine. So, I think, so, so one of the things that uh, I've read the paper um, and I've listened to you, your first comments, I think one of the things for me that I think needs to be clarified is whether or not uh, public policy, uh, fiscal policy in this case, should really discount politics, you know, um, whether policy policy are, you know, um, in government uh, and in natural treasury should really discount and 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 really take out of the equation politics. And 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 my understanding is that it should not be the case. Uh, politics are part of policy of public policy. And for me, is that for as long as the economy is is punching below its potential. And uh, the fiscal needs are expanding, um, and the and and the gap bef- between the fiscal needs and the fiscal commitment is expanding. You will always get that uh, that political pressure. Um, so so I mean that should be given for me um, uh, from the fiscal policy side. But then the worry that I have, um, I've been reading the the budget speeches. I mean for for ages. It seems to me that it's either fiscal policy has has got uh, uh, fatigue um, and and uh, and uh, rendered itself uh, as equivalent to to budget framework, because I haven't seen uh, in recent times uh, fiscal policy uh, 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 thinking of itself as 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 can influence your know, uh, economic growth in the country. Um, all we all we hear is, is, is um, expenditure. It's it's the trade-offs between the expenditure and tax revenue. So I just wanna uh, I just wanna ask you whether it is the case that uh, fiscal policy has, has has just rendered itself as um, out of the out of the equation of influence of the micro. And and if you remember in 2012, 2011, though, up 
stay in those years after after recently after 2008 we had um, a policy that we called a counter cyclical fiscal policy right where we we we, we thought of fiscal policy um, as an as a tool one of the tools that can that can um, uh, influence uh, uh, economic growth so let me pause there uh, yeah uh, thank you, sir. Uh, Sam, I suppose I, I, I just go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah. So I think the issues you're raising, Linda, are very, uh, obviously, different economists take different views, have, have widely ranging views about the relationship between fiscal policy and economic growth. Uh, and... Um, these issues are controversial, um, and and I, I I think there's a there's a lot of room for reasonable people to disagree about what is the proper role of fiscal policy. But uh, in our but I think it's important. I think one of the mistakes we usually like if you listen to economist debates, you'll hear one saying, uh, "In this model, such and such happens." And then another will say, but in that model, something else happens, right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, economic theory kind of tends to proceed by trying to take the, the, the complexity of the economy and reduce it to a model and try and draw kind of abstract general conclusions about what are the relationships involved. Because an economy is a very complex thing, obviously, uh, it's it's about millions and millions of interactions, billions of interactions, in fact. Uh, and how do you summarize all of this in a simple, in a way that a human mind can understand? And the way you do it is by constructing these models. And depending on what kinds of assumptions you make and what kind of theory you have, which is also grounded in your own uh, probably ideological uh, presuppositions, uh, you might arrive at different conclusions. The important thing, I think, though, that we sometimes lose in, 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 in all of that is what is the concrete conditions that we face in South Africa today? Uh, so, and, and I think, you know, uh, no model can really tell you, uh, can, can help you, no abstract model can help you understand these con concrete conditions. You have to study what is uh, happening in South Africa right now and, and, and what position are we in rather than uh, how should we think about this in abstract? So in response to your question, I would say since two, so, so as you said, Linda, we, we had this idea of a counter-cyclical economic, uh, counter-cyclical fiscal policy. What is that for those that might not know? It means, so the economy is supposed to go in cycles. You have you know, seven years of plenty and seven ye lean years. Uh, there's a cycle that goes up and a cycle that goes down. And when times are good, uh, so the theory goes, you should constrain, you should, you should constrain your expenditure. And when times are bad, you can f afford to spend more in order to boost the economy. Now, the problem with the counter cyclical policy in South Africa is that we don't seem to have a cycle in the sense that we have been stagnating now since about uh, 2012. So, so, so for 10 years, uh, um, uh, uh, 
GDP per capita has essentially been falling. And in that time, we have sustained a very large fiscal deficit. So the fiscal deficit on average over the last 10 years has been somewhere around 5% of GDP. So, so if a counter-cyclical policy is that you go into a deficit in order to boost the economy and then the economy grows and then you can kind of withdraw the stimulus and return to normal. The problem in our case is that we've been boosting the economy for 10 years through, through a, a, a so, so the deficit now, it looks like it's fixed. It's a permanent feature of our fiscal policy. It's not counter-cyclical. It's structural. In other words, it's a permanent uh, deficit. We don't have enough uh, revenue to cover our expenditure. And the deficit has been growing wider and wider. So in the years leading up to coronavirus, uh, in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, the, the, the deficit got wider and wider. And uh, obviously, coronavirus hit us. And that's where uh, government played its counter-cyclical role in the sense that when the economy collapsed in the face of the pandemic or the lockdowns, uh, we didn't cut spending. We carried on spending as before. And so if you look at um, uh, government spending over that shock of the coronavirus cycle, we did have this kind of stimulus effect uh, to some extent from the government. Some might argue that we should have done more, done less. I don't know. But the point is, we're now past the coronavirus uh, crisis, I think. And we're now looking at a deficit that is, again, stuck at somewhere around 5 or 6% of GDP. And it looks like it's going to be stuck there permanently. So, so it's difficult in that situation. It's not like uh, a situation of a country that is running a kind of balanced budget and then suddenly the economy is performing badly and you increase expenditure and you increase your deficit. And then that helps the economy uh, to get back to normal. Uh, uh, and then and then you, you can withdraw that spending. We, we seem to be the problems, the fiscal problems we face and the economic problems we face are not cyclical. They're not temporary. They are permanent structural features of our economy uh, uh, that require some kind of deep, uh, reform, transformation of the economy and society, not simply uh, stimulating uh, through extra spending. That's my view. I'm sure, as I say, many people can disagree and, and there's a lot to debate there, uh, but that would be my response here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Mike, can we go back a little bit? You're talking about an economy that has stagnated from around uh, 2012. Could we look at the quality of the growth and the boom years before that and the reasons uh, thereof? Is it possible that the growth we saw in the period uh, before we started stagnating was because of the global demand and the global growth and uh, other issues more than our active great work in South Africa to grow the economy back then? I'm asking uh, just to go historically, but to come back to the issue we're looking at now, the commodity prices boom and uh, the global demand helping us a little bit, giving us a bit of a windfall and a saving grace. I'm trying to say it looks like we are in a country in a permanent crisis mode 
And uh, what saves us is the global uh, economy. We swing with the global economy. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, there was a narrative that was very strong. Uh, I, I mean, if you, if you look at what happened with fiscal policy, for instance, uh, after 1994, uh, we had the implementation of the GEAR policy, which was like the first uh, kind of attempt to uh, fix the, the fiscal situation through austerity. And uh, it just so happened that that policy was implemented in an economic downturn and so reinforced that downturn. But uh, you, 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 it kind of stabilized in the sense that the, 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 it didn't really fix the fiscal situation, but it, it created a lot of uh, positive attitude in the markets towards the capacity of government to execute fiscal policy. So there was a narrative that emerged out of that that became very strong during the Mbeki administration and uh, while Trevor Manuel was the finance minister that we have done, we have uh, uh, implemented prudent macroeconomic policies. We've put in place world-class institutions, including world-class fiscal institutions and budget institutions. We've done uh, what uh we're, we're supposed to do we've been good boys and girls and now we have this remarkable boom and uh i, I always say at some point you know trevor manuel took to handing out fruits at the budget speech uh showing that you know now we have the fruits of our earlier sacrifices but actually if you look at it in hindsight uh I mean, it may be that fiscal institutions and policy was, was, was a factor, but the main factor behind the stabilization and the reduction of debt and the spurt of growth in South Africa between around 2002 and 2012 was what was called the commodity super cycle, which was a, a historic event uh, linked to the industrialization of China that uh, massively, in uh, and so what happens when you have a commodity cycle in South Africa, what it does is it, it boosts the incomes of the uh, affluent uh, in, in the South African population. So it boosts, it's, it, it, it's like the rent, you own gold, uh, you don't necessarily increase output, you just get more income, more rent from the assets that you own. And so what you see is a boom in the stock market, a boom in the mining sector, a boom in the financial sector. And because so much of the economy is dominated by mining and finance, that carries through into the rest of the economy. And that's exactly what happened between 2002 and 2012. And that's why growth accelerated. And that's why the fiscal position looked much better than it had done the decade earlier. And what did we do in that period? We massively expanded spending uh, of, of the state. We did two things. We, we increased spending and we lowered taxes, right? So, so we, we increased, and, and I'm, I, it's not necessarily that either of those decisions was wrong. What did we increase spending on? We increased spending on health and basic education and policing. So we massively expanded the size of the police force. We uh, expanded the number of teachers and the number of nurses and the number of doctors in the healthcare system. 
We gave those people much better pay deal. And this is all, uh, I should add, under the Mbeki administration. So we gave them all a much better pay bill uh, with something called the occupation-specific dispensation, which raised the pay of public servants. And we went on an infrastructure surge, uh, particularly financing, putting a lot of money into ESCOM to build infrastructure. And we expanded uh, social grants, uh, particularly the, the child support grants. While we were doing this, we lowered taxes. So we had massive tax relief given all of those years. And we convinced ourselves uh, that we were good boys and girls. We'd done the good policy as we're supposed to, as we're told to do. And therefore, we're now, we've arrived at a new, better uh, uh, macroeconomic situation. And therefore, we can afford more. Then we faced a rude awakening in 2008 with the global financial crisis, and then the, the global commodity super cycle ran out of steam from around 2012. And suddenly, fiscal policy looked bad again. Not because uh, fiscal policy had changed, the spending didn't increase. And I, and I think it's one of the big uh, mistakes that people make. That, you know, spending did not increase during the, the, the Zuma years. It was very well contained. Uh, what happened is that taxes collapsed. Taxes collapsed because growth collapsed. So you had a new global macroeconomic environment. And what uh, that called upon us to do is to adjust. Because, uh, and, and I mean, this is the, you know, the, the, the different, there's a big difference between a developed economy and a developing economy. There are many differences. But one of the hallmarks of the differences that is kind of goes back in the literature for, for, for decades is that uh, developed economies adjust to their own growth momentum, their own technological development, their own autonomous development process. Developing countries have to adjust to developments at the center of the world economy. So the center of the world economy changed. Uh, the, the, the trajectory of global growth changed and South Africa suddenly found itself with rising debt, large fiscal deficit, unable to sustain the spending that it had committed itself to. At that point, uh, really what we should have done in some sense is adjust downwards. In other words, uh, restrain our spending, reduce our spending, uh, uh, raise taxes or adjust our fiscal framework in some way or another, but we we couldn't do so. And in a sense, it's understandable why we couldn't do so because, you know, in a society like ours with the kind of inequality and unemployment and poverty that we have, and given the promise of the Constitution uh, that there should be a rising floor of social and economic rights, the idea that you should adjust downwards your 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 policy package reduce what you're offering to people is very doesn't fly politically so we didn't adjust we stayed where we are uh and we just uh, rode along for a decade as growth continued to stagnate and we we returned to the position that we were in uh, before the commodity boom now we're in another commodity boom and once again we are using the space available to us by this temporary boom 
to make permanent commitments to increased expenditure. And uh, things won't look so bad this year or next year, but at some point in the future, there will be an adjustment. And the pain of that adjustment is, is likely to be even worse than it was last time. So let me stop there because uh, I can't just go on and on, but <laughs> that's my answer, Sam. Thank you, thank you. I think Nella wants to come in there. Nella, you're welcome to make your input. And anybody else who would like to have their say, have a question for Michael, please uh, raise your hand and by uh, asking to be made a speaker. It's normally the bottom left uh, of your cell phone or of, the, of this app. And then we'll make sure you get handed uh, the mic uh, over to you and you throw your question in. And the plan is to be out of this space at 8 o'clock. Thank you so much. Nella? Okay. Thanks, thanks, Sam. Um, and, and thanks for the for that question um, about the the economic boom of the two thousands, and um, and I think uh, Michael has has, uh, has explained it uh, very very good. But I think there is a an aspect that I think uh, is is missing. If, for example, you look uh, you look at the capital formation capital stock of that period between two thousand and two thousand eight, and you see the trend. I mean, the curve is steep there, right? Uh, that means uh, both the, the public and the private sector were actually investing in the economy. And if you look at, at the, the contribution of the state-owned enterprises, right? They were actually carrying this economy, right? In terms of capital stock. But something happened in 2008, right? I think we have to agree that uh, nothing just happens uh, for no reason. For me, is that uh, it's quite clear that uh, 2008 um, altered the allocation of capital for both private and 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 public sector, right? Less and less capital stock was was invested in the in the economy, and therefore that can partly explain uh, the permanent uh, stagnation in terms of economy, economic growth in South Africa. Now the question that we need to ask as as as, as economists, uh, including you, Prof, is that why the state-owned enterprises were unable to uh, uh, to counter right uh, that misallocation of 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 capital right away from the, from the capital stock right, and I think this is this is the question that, for example, you 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 included in your in your in your paper, right? But I don't think we have explored uh, the reason why SOEs have been unable to to counter uh, the misallocation of capital, except to except to explain it as as uh, as a, as a function of corruption, and therefore uh, these state enterprises, you know, were unable to do X, Y, and Z. But I think there's a deeper. But I think there's a deeper. There's a deeper reason for that. Um, um, that we need to explore, right? Now, one of the things that uh, uh, that we have raised, for example, in the in the paper, was that uh, uh, we need to solve uh, uh, consumption, and I took that as meaning that uh, uh, we we need to increase our savings so that. Uh, uh, to to improve the capital stock and investment in the economy, but if you look, for example, at uh, at what just happened in 2020, right? In 2020, we uh, any any economics 
economist would have expected what, what happened uh, precisely was that uh, during the economic shocks, like, like, like a pandemic in 2020, uh, a lot of capital savings would tend to go away from the capital stock towards savings. But if you track what those, those savings uh, went to, you will see that the yields, uh, the yields of, uh, of our bond, government bonds were going high, and therefore there was a leakage um, in the loop between savings and, and capital stock. And therefore you'll see that that leakage is squeezing off, is squeezing uh, the, the economic growth because there's no capital stock, uh, there's no investment in the economy. But now we have to then look at what happened to our SOE, right? And my answer to that is that uh, our SOEs are unable to respond uh, to this alteration of uh, of capital of capital allocation because they are funded exactly the same way as our private sector is funded, right? So if the if the private capital cannot invest in a in a lackluster economic growth, then the the state enterprises as well cannot, right? Because they are funded the same, right? Now, if you look at 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 at, at the contingency. Uh, the, the debt in our balance sheet right now, you'll see that ESCO um, has a 350 billion rand that is sitting in our contingencies uh, account in national treasury, and that that debt is it's 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 what is 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 actually impacting the economy right now, because right now ESCO is asking for 20% increase in in, uh, in in tariffs, right? Because it's carrying this debt, right? That should have uh, probably been uh, uh, carried by the national treasury, by, by, by the government itself. Right? At at that point, when we needed uh, to uh, to expand um, our generation capacity, but because of the policy posture of the government, that uh, state-owned enterprises should carry themselves. That means whatever they they need to invest should be carried by their by their balance sheet. But then we should then forget because if we do that. We should not then forget about uh, government being able to to counter uh, uh, business cycles, right? Because they are they are funded the same way as private sector funds. So for me, the question should be like the question that we need to ask to, to answer, Michael, is whether or not our policy position towards the state-owned enterprises is optimal for this economy to be able to counter the business cycles. Thanks, Ndala. What about you, Mike? Okay, well, you said a lot there. Uh, I, I wouldn't quite agree that uh, capital spending by uh, state-owned companies uh, declined after 2008. In fact, uh, while my reading of the data is that capital spending by state-owned companies continued at uh, quite a, a, a strong pace, uh, there was a bit of a dip after 2008, it's true, but compared to the level that they were prior to that, uh, the spending uh, on, because because if you look at state-owned companies, first of all, let's be clear, what are we talking about here? If you look at uh, public sector capital spending, you're really talking about two state-owned companies. You're talking about ESCOM and Transnet. Uh, Sunroll plays a role. Prasa plays a role. Uh, the general the budget plays almost no role whatsoever. Uh, the spending on budget on infrastructure is extremely small. Uh, 
So all of the really the driver of the public sector um, uh, capital spending or infrastructure spending is ESCOM and Transnet. Those are the big drivers. In the case of Transnet, uh, because you know it's one thing. You see, there's a fundamental difference. You you were talking about the private sector and the public sector. There's a fundamental difference between uh, capital spending in the private sector and in the public sector. And, and, and what it is is that, you know, if you create an asset in the private sector and uh, uh, that, that asset is, is of no value, in other words, you spend a whole lot of money uh, and you create an asset and the, the asset that you create doesn't generate any revenue, uh, you go bankrupt, and the value of that cap that capital stock is constantly revalued. The value of that capital stock is constantly changed by the market. But if you do the same in the public sector, for instance, ESCOM, you build two very large, very expensive coal-fired power stations over many years, extending, and, and all of your spending uh, money is poured into that year after year, and after a decade of building those those structures, you are unable to generate electricity. Uh, somehow the value of those assets are not revalued. And so the reason ESCOM is now having to raise tariffs is because of the wasteful capital expenditure that that uh, that was incurred in those years. So I don't think it's true that the, the, the state-owned companies uh, stopped spending on capital. It's true in the case a little bit of, of, of Transnet. And in a sense, it's a similar story because Transnet had overestimated its capital needs. Also because of the commodity boom, because they had assumed, because what, is, what does Transnet do? It builds railways that take commodities to the sea to be exported, essentially. And uh, while the commodity boom was on, it made economic sense to, to, to have a very large uh, in investment program. But once the commodity boom unwound, they scaled back their investment program because they knew they would not be able to, to, to finance uh, the, the, that investment from, from commodity exports. In the case of uh, ESCOM, Essentially, billions and hundreds of billions of rands were thrown away. And, and in fact, what ESCOM was doing, I would say, was not investment. It was, it's more like hidden consumption. The, 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 other, the best example of this is Prasa. So between 2007 and 2019, Prasa was allocated from the budget directly and here I mean, maybe this responds to your story about uh, private financing and public financing. They were allocated from the budget 100 billion in, in, in uh, capital funds, free money to spend on capital to expand the passenger rail network. Uh, that I'm excluding the operating subsidies that Prasa was given. So they were given 100 billion rand in a decade to expand the passenger rail network. If you, if you look at some of the pictures now, uh, of what that network looks like, you will also agree that that money was not capital. The fact that it was called capital spending in the budget or in the national accounts is, is kind of irrelevant. That money was consumed 
So that is the reason why the public sector infrastructure investment uh, program came to an end. It's because the public companies uh, collapsed uh, because of consuming their capital budgets uh, on assets that didn't generate revenue. And uh, I suppose if we want to just finance them directly out of taxation, we should not have them as, as, as companies, but rather as uh, just departments of government that, that kind of spend and consume that money. So I think uh, I'm very skeptical about whether government, the, the reason government can't raise uh, uh, investment is because, again, it's, it's not facing uh, the difficult, painful work of rectifying those terrible policy mistakes that were made, uh, in, in fact, long before the period of state capture began um, in, S in an ESCOM. Um, and, and unless we confront that head on and, and face the restructuring that needs to take place uh, of ESCOM, it's going to be very difficult to revive a, a capital investment program. Okay, thanks, uh, Mike. Mike, I saw your name on another report, the Reading Panel 2030, uh, an initiative that includes big names like Pumzile uh, Mlambo our former deputy president. In the education context, it's one of the pillars that uh, we need to look at when you talk about a better South Africa. As I'm looking really here for any silver linings as we wrap up uh, this conversation. And I get the sense that that report also points uh, to problems uh, around teacher retirement, uh, numbers doubling up in the next uh, 10 years, and therefore leaving us with a massive deficit uh, of uh, teachers and just a, really a problem with our education and uh, education outputs. Could you give us a sense that uh, there is a silver lining potentially somewhere? Is there anything you can bank on? <laughs> It's very tough, Sam, the question you ask. And then you wanted me to give you a silver lining because actually what you're citing here is one of the scariest uh, uh, statistics I've heard, uh, certainly this year. Um, uh, and that is that, as you say, something like 50% of public uh, sector teachers are going to be retiring in the next uh, a decade. And apparently, according to the to the research that was done as part of this reading panel, in order to to fill the gap that will emerge, the teacher training uh, system, which is in universities, the, the 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 teacher training college, will have to increase their output of teachers uh, from around twenty five thousand a year to around fifty thousand a year in the next five years. So you need, in order, in order to replace the teachers that are going to retire from the public system, you need a massive expansion in teacher training. And at the same time, everyone seems to agree that the central problem with teacher training is not the quantity of teachers that we produce, but the quality. In that, uh, the the, uh, the 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 particularly the subject knowledge. So we train people to teach. But the very same people, they might be good at teaching, but they don't know basic literacy and basic numeracy. Uh, and we put them in a classroom. 
so, so we have this huge challenge of massively expanding the number of teachers, while at the same time... Mike, are you there? Since you have lost you. Yeah, no, I'm back, I think. I don't know what happened. So what's the silver lining? I suppose the silver lining is, so, so, so that whole reading panel, what, what the aim was is that we really need to focus on the foundation phase. We really need to focus our energies on ensuring that uh, um, kids in grade R to grade three get decent literacy and decent numeracy. And uh, we really should be focusing our energy there. And I suppose the silver lining is, is that that's something that's very close to the president's heart. Uh, he, he, he neglected to mention it in this State of the Nation address. It was a promise from a previous year that apparently has been crowded out by all the other various promises that were made this year. Uh, but it, 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 this is the kind of challenge that uh, we need to mobilize society around because Really, our focus on, for instance, free university education for me is, is starting at the wrong end. We really should be focusing on, a, if as a nation, we could work together to massively improve the quality of foundation phase, primary school education, and get kids reading and numerate, then, then, then we would have done something not only because, and, and education is important for two, for two reasons. On the one hand, it's absolutely essential for, for, for growth. Uh, so it's a key constraint on growth and development. But secondly, it is important for its own sake that in order for a human being to function with dignity and respect in a society, they need education. So even if it doesn't need, uh, it lead to growth, it's important in its own right. So Maybe the silver lining is that that's the kind of thing if we could mobilize uh, po political leadership around, uh, maybe we could make a difference. Michael Sachs, adjunct professor at VES, thank you so much. Uh, very depressing uh, issues about a great country. I'm really concerned about uh, the things we're looking at here. When you look at 2030, you know, this is the year marked uh, in the National Development Plan where South Africa will reach the land of milk and honey. Looks like we're not going to get there, and I am worried about the next uh, couple of years. On that very depressing note, and thank you, Michael, for joining us, Ndala, for your question, and everybody.